welcome to Slater Pod episode 20 in what may be the final week of a partial lockdown in the country that I'm in, Switzerland. Hi, Esther. Hey, Florian. That's great news for you. I know. Who knows? If it, every, everyone's um, afraid they may have to go back to some form of lockdown when the children are let out and, uh, you know, when they go to school again. But... Uh, who knows? So you just told me before we started this that in London, or that the, the government is going to decide this on week Sunday. To, on Sunday about yeah next steps. Sunday, Sunday, which is really I mean fair enough. I get it. It's a bit of a shame because you know today is today's bank holiday, <laughs> but I think that's kind of strategic potentially. So they don't want people kind of all out and about on a sunny bank holiday. Um, so Sunday, yeah, we'll find out whether we have any kind of easing of uh, the lockdown or not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When we look back at this period, every time we, you know, you start the podcast with a with a Corona lockdown update. It's very 2020. Uh, anyway, uh, today we're going to talk about uh, just a, a chapter I really love from our market report that we launched mm -hmm. uh, last Friday and that is doing very, very, uh, very well. Um, then talk about a, quite an odd, I, I think that's the appropriate word, at least in my view, to, uh, odd move by uh, LSP, the big word out of uh, the UK. Mm -hmm. Then uh, just a couple of words about the COVID again, outlook industry, um, some thoughts around LSP that are private equity funded, um, and then moving on to Amazon and subtitling, uh, Amazon Prime mm -hmm. video, that is Amazon Prime video subtitling. And then a very interesting uh, controversy around ISO standards uh, where the Germans are breaking rank with the others. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, so, you know, as we, we said on the last podcast and, you know, of course promoted it on LinkedIn, Twitter, and on the website, we published our flagship 2020 report, uh, 55 yep. pages full of pretty much everything you want to know about this industry. Um, you know, of course, market estimates, um, then you know, M&A, technology, TMS, um, and, uh, and and funding and everything around it. But one of my favorite chapters actually is um, around job titles and uh, of, of buyer, buyer job titles. Uh, and then a mm -hmm. chapter we had around uh, what we called core and adjacent services. So the job titles, I think we're listing around 400 to 500 uh, individual job titles of... Yeah, four, 400 or so. Yeah. 400. And then... Mm -hmm. Uh, I think about 200 services. 200 services, yeah, give or take. 400 job titles, give or take. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of information there. And and we decided on that relatively late in mm. the writing of the report because we felt that during times like these, yes, you want to have some of the macro intelligence, right, size and yeah. and, and 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 the breakdown by buyer vertical, etc. But what you also really need. Uh, especially on the vendor side, is uh, intelligence for business development and sales and marketing, right? right. You, do, you don't really yeah. want to freeze as a provider at this point in time and just try to do only protective measures like, uh, you know, in a sense that make sure you retain the cash, but you also want to make sure that you continue to work with your, be in touch with your clients, but also try to keep the funnel, the sales funnel open and try to develop some business. 
Um, and, and so I felt that uh, we took some of the proprietary information we had you know, on, on job titles, and then we did a major round of research around services. So maybe just tell us a bit more about how that came about. Yeah, on the, on the services side, it, it really was um, quite a big project in and of itself. We looked at the websites of the leading LSPs, sort of using the LSPI as a, our, our ranking as a starting point. Um, so we went and surveyed sort of 100 plus websites um, of LSPs to find out what services are they saying that they offer. Um, I mean, and obviously you're going to see things like translation, localization, interpreting. Um, but I, I mean, I was really surprised at the sort of breadth of it. Um, mm. So we, we did have way more than than 200 to begin with. Uh, but then obviously we kind of we, we needed to whittle down some of those that were a bit vague, um, like, I don't know, solutions, you know, just sort of vague language didn't really mean anything. Language um, kind solutions? Of, <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah. yeah, just things that we couldn't really didn't seem to be particularly well defined, let's say. So we really did try and kind of get to the core of this and I suppose and also to the adjacent um but to to work out okay what is it that LSPs are offering um what kind of services are they selling and, and from there so reconciled a few that were also sort of the same thing essentially um, and came up with a list of 200 and from there what we did was re- look at it really analyze okay what are these services what what do they consist of um, and we broke that down then into firstly a distinction between core what we would call sort of the core of localization or the core of the language industry um, and then into adjacent which okay it's stuff that makes sense for companies lsps to do for one reason or another Um, so we've got quite a few different categories there under core and adjacent but i think it provides a good overview of what you know potentially some of the your competitors are doing in in the lsp space and also you know potentially some ideas there for how what direction you might want to take also um, or some options for sort of expanding that service portfolio as well yeah, that's right. So because as an LSP, you have a certain structural setup, uh, as we're now finding out, you know, extremely well suited uh, for remote. Uh, and then, uh, you know, also other things like data labeling, uh, stuff like that. So we, we again, mm-hmm. 200 services, uh, huge many to choose from and, and really helpful for strategic decision making uh, for 2020 and beyond. And then the the job title list, it's super actionable. I mean, you know, you take that and you you, you use it to, to build your funnel and, and do some marketing and sales. Yeah, I mean, we've also helpfully split out the job titles by function. Um, All right, yes. Yeah. As well. And we, have, and we have a list of the top 20 based on the frequency of the job titles. Okay. Um, so that really will be a good starting point, I think. Yeah, let me pull that up. So... The top 20 frequent terms. Well, unsurprisingly, number one is translation. Number two is language, then specialist, then project, services, globalization, head, localization, program, yeah. content, etc. So, you know, uh, get your yeah. uh, LinkedIn Pro or SalesNav subscription and start uh, typing away and, and building that funnel um, for those who don't already do that, of course. So moving on. Um, also, uh, another funnel building exercise, in a sense, we received an email from uh, UK-based The Big Word, a uh, very large uh, language service provider, 
if we are, you know, <laughs> offering that if we, I mean, we're in trouble cash-wise, financially speaking, you know, we could offload our clients and certain assets to the big word. Uh, and they helpfully set up a website called WordPy. Um, you know, let's just leave that there. And apparently it's not very targeted because, you know, I received it as Slater. I mean, there was... No other communication, but one was literally the like treating Slater like an LSP that potentially could be in trouble and would be a potential what they call partner for this program. So the list is not extremely well curated. So this must have mm. been a fairly broad blast that also Slater is captured as one of the LSPs because, well, we're not. We're a media company. Um, and then let me just walk you through this, uh, what they call a unique program. So... They said it has been designed to allow language service providers to transfer their clients to WordPy, but continue to receive agreed remuneration for a number of years for the ongoing work received from those clients. They go on to say that research shows that the number of LSPs will run out of money within the next three months. And then they say instead of simply closing the doors, struggling LSPs could have an opportunity to continue to receive some payments for the business they have built up in the past through the Big Work Group. Um, I think it's a pretty bold and somewhat bold. odd. Yeah, <laughs> it's bold. Bold was the word that came to mind. Yeah. Yeah, bold, but also, I mean, from a reputational standpoint, I doubt this is going to do them a lot of good. Frankly, I mean, you know, basically, you're going out there and saying, "Hey, if you're, you know, if you're about to go bankrupt, why don't you, you know, hand us your clients?" I mean, there may be some merit at the very end to this, and they may pick up a few, but. I think it's also a bit of an underestimation of the the savviness of, of owners of small LSPs. I mean, generally, you know, we've been analyzing since since Corona has come around, we've been analyzing kind of the essential business model of LSPs. I mean, one key component is that it's fairly uh, flexible on, on the fixed cost base. I mean, there's or it, the fixed cost base is, is um, quite low, especially the smaller mm. you get. I mean, you don't have fancy offices, you don't have major assets. So in a sense, if you're losing a lot of client business, you can ramp down fairly easily by, you know, outsourcing less. Maybe if, if you're very small, starting to translate yourself again as a, as a small business owner, et cetera. So so it's not one of the typical business to go bust very quickly into a recession, right? Now, yeah. obviously, if you're super exposed to three clients that they're all sending zero work now, yes, you're probably going to go, I mean, you're going to have to wind down in some shape or form, but it's, it, it, you know, unless you have your le uh, leverage, like you have loans, uh, I mean, like it's, you, you can live for quite a long time without actually mm. going going broke. So. Again, I mean, maybe a lot of people who listen to this podcast got the, got the same email um, yeah. from, from them. I mean, there was... It, it seems a bit like a scattergun approach, doesn't it? Oh, fully. Is... I mean, the fact that we're caught in that, uh, that we're on that list means that must have gone out to a thousand plus uh, LSPs, right? Because we're not even an LSP and we're on the list. So nobody really mm -hmm. looked at every single email that went out. Um, yeah, you know, let's see. I mean, some people commented on LinkedIn that... Uh, yeah, again, probably not the best move from a reputational standpoint, but uh, let's leave that there. We talked a bit about leverage just now. So uh, what's interesting is also going to be how some of the private equity-owned um, LSPs are going to go th come through this eventually because a lot of this yeah. uh, 
or some of those acquisitions were funded through debt, right? And uh, the debt is then uh, loaded onto the company. So they need to make monthly, you know, loan payments or interest payments, and that requires a fair amount of cash. So here you have an actual fixed cost that's not negotiable, or you can't just downsize that. Well, you're on the hook for for those interest payments, so you need to generate a fair amount of cash to to service those those interest payments. So um, something we should be looking at in the coming month of how you know some of these large private equity owned LSPs are faring and um, and that, that 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 there is some potential for disruption in that so if you're actually taking a significant hit and you're unable to service your debt uh, then then you're in real trouble and that's that's unlike if you're debt free and you can just ramp down your operations that's very different so yeah, I mean, generally, I, I, we both, we keep talking to a lot of people in the industry about, you know, Corona, how is it impacting you? And I think the the one picture that starts to emerge, I mean, apart from the obvious media is in a good spot. And uh, if you're for travel and retail, maybe not so great, uh, is that it's just hard to say. I mean, even within specific client segments, uh, there's, you know, work that's fully dried up and others that's that's really uh, ramped up. So it's, it's, it's very hard to give broad statements around yeah. uh, this. We, you know, we did try to assess it in our market report from a kind of a super top-down vertical perspective, uh, mm. but it's, uh, it's it's tough to say. I think. Well, it's what, a moving target, isn't it? As well, it is a moving know. target, in, indeed. Yeah, because it also depends. You know, again, V-shaped recovery, L or well, L wouldn't be a recovery, but L-shaped <laughs> development, uh, W, whatever. All these uh, letters that have been thrown out there. Um, so let's see what one issue would be solvency of your clients um you know also longer payment terms you know when you're moving from 30 to 50 days or your your, your clients are say or you know say hey uh, you know we used to agree on, or we had we, we had agreed 60 days now let's say make 90 that really increases your need for cap cash in bank because you're probably not going to be able to offload all of that to your uh, supply chain so solvency of some of those clients will be an issue if, if some of those go bankrupt then no never mind you know, the work you're getting from them, I mean, you also need to get paid, right? So revenue is one thing, but actually getting the invoices paid is is a very different one. So one company that definitely doesn't have any issues paying their bills is Amazon. Um, (laughs) You know, imagine they're, they're up year to date. Their share price is basically at near record high. It's a $1.2 trillion company. And one of the many, many businesses they're in is video streaming. So we picked up on a very interesting uh, research paper from them. Can you just walk us through that, Esther? Yeah, absolutely. This is the from Amazon Prime Video, yeah. Hmm. International Expansion. So two researchers from the International Expansion team of Prime Video um, looked into um, quality estimation in subtitling. Um, so they've brought out a research paper called Deep Sub QE, Quality Estimation for Subtitle Translations. Um, and they actually go into some detail in, in the paper about how important sort of language and content is for these streaming providers. Um, you know, firstly, because Amazon, Netflix, etc., are using languages, essentially language content to increase their viewership. Um, however, when translations are bad, so when you have bad subtitling, etc., um, they said it can actually cause increased usage drop-off um, and can hurt. Essentially, you know, you, nobody's going to stick around to watch something that they either can't understand or they can't bear to read. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a big topic for them, and it's something that they're not only looking into on the subtitling side, but they're also exploring sort of machine options for for dubbing. 
Um, but coming back to the the subtitling, I mean, this is really driven by, um, I suppose, a need to uh, to reduce costs and, and create efficiencies within the subtitling workflow. And so they say checking translations or checking the subtitling is expensive for one thing. Um, if you're doing it in a human sort of workflow. Um, and it's also subtitling is expensive, as you can imagine, when you've got lower resource languages. Um, so this is why they're really looking into sort of a machine-led approach to quality management of subtitles. Um, and, and their method actually is an interesting one. So they've said that sort of existing methods of quality estimation, so essentially sort of predicting how good the quality of, of subtitles is going to be, um, is without kind of human human eye looking over it most of those methods right now sort of evaluate or look at look at the translation quality based on an acceptability scale so is it acceptable is it not acceptable but the amazon researchers said that actually it's not a very good way of looking at subtitles because sometimes or a lot of a lot of the time in subtitles you would employ methods like paraphrasing like idiom um, that actually a machine might pick up that as a bad translation where actually it's, it's perfectly fine so they came up with this third category which is loose um, so your loose. translations can be loose um, it makes sense it will be a, a sort of a departure from the source text but still appropriate in context um, so in their system translations can be good bad or loose um, and helpfully i think they, they kind of equated that to actually what it would mean in practice for your quality management teams so they're saying right anything that we categorize is, is as good is fine as is and doesn't actually need any further intervention um, however any subtitles that we categorize as loose might need edits so somebody probably should take a look at them um, and anything that's bad needs a complete rewrite so um, it's kind of a so helpful yeah, sorry. No, go ahead, yeah. No, it seems like a quite a basic triage, right? Yeah. An initial I mean, I triage. think at, at that level it is, yeah. But I yeah. think obviously there's, there's a lot a lot behind it in terms yeah. of the tech, in terms of th like aspects that they're taking into account and how they're actually classifying those those translations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's probably an, an initial triage and then to just not have to look at everything. I mean... Yeah. But... Uh, I'm always very skeptical around any automated quality estimation model mm. still. I mean, despite all the AI, um, it's still hard to get it right. I mean, subtitling must be very hard as well because sometimes you literally ha you have to be extremely loose, right? To just the textual yeah. constraints like and, uh, and context. But the word, and, and the word limit, sort of the yeah, character exactly. limitations the word and limit. like I mean, that, yeah. You know, yeah. imagine English into German, everything gets really long, so... Uh, there, there is stuff that gets lost. Uh, yeah, let's just very briefly also talk about one of their potential suppliers, uh, Zoo Digital, just uh, provided an update and they're seeing what they call a reassuring resumption in demand. Mm. Uh, we talked about green shoots in MediaLock before when VSI was able to send people back to their studios slowly. Uh, yeah, what's going on at Zoo, just very briefly. Yeah, Zoo's an interesting example, actually. I mean, in their update recently, they, they shared that, um, that a lot of the work that they're seeing right now is from back catalogue content. So this is sort of, I guess, a, a pretty obvious um, or logical logical step for, for Zoo's customers because right now they can't actually go and shoot any new content, films, etc. Um, however, they still want to keep new content flowing into 
audiences. So they're now, you know, essentially tr translating, localizing their back catalog of content. Um, yeah. Like Disney, for example, great example of that huge back catalog of content, um, you know, which which needs to be localized. Um, so back catalog content definitely um, now sort of playing a bigger role for Zoo um, rather than sort of original content or new productions that they had been doing over the past sort of six months. Um, that's what Stuart Green, the CEO, said to us when we when we spoke to him. Um, so aside from the back catalogue, they're also seeing um, increased uptake of um, Zoo dubs. So this is their cloud-based dubbing solution, um, which has been around for a while. Um, but now they're saying, okay, we've got demand, increased demand from existing clients and also from, from some new clients. So it's been, and I think it's an interesting conundrum, I think, for, for the wider market of, of sort of media localizers that we're seeing. Um, Zoo has obviously had this dubbing solution out um, for a while um, and we've also seen a couple of others uh, right now sort of like shifting to offering some cloud-based dubbing as well like Deluxe for example released their um, cloud-based dubbing yeah, solution th this well. week yeah. Transperfect um, yeah. VSI said that they'd been delivering some remote dubbing as well um, but I think a lot of the sort of traditional media localizers uh, are also really keen to highlight when their studios are up and running mm -hmm. again so that they can get back to you know potentially business as usual um, oh, you mean the conundrum in, is like actually the in the studios yeah, you mean on the one yeah. hand, they're pushing like, hey, we're going to go back to the studios. On the other, hey, we're all set up for the remote world now with our virtual yeah. uh, cloud. Exactly. Like on the one hand, you kind of need to be offering the cloud yeah. solutions right now. Otherwise, your clients might be going elsewhere. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of the time they, they have been saying um, on the traditional side that, you know, in studio is better. It gives a prof more professional um, quality, uh, more professional sort of overall um yeah o o overall products so you have to yeah. see sort of how that evolves let's see how that plays out and i think it's probably mm. a fairly difficult piece of technology to build um you probably yeah. don't build that overnight so yeah. maybe zoo does have an edge there but um well good for I, zoo I anyway i mean the, sh the shares are up are currently up about 25 percent year to date so they're having, a, having a pretty good run yeah, yeah i mean it's there it's pretty volatile it's, it's a relatively yeah. small stock but um definitely one of the winners here um yeah to to wrap we had an interesting story out of germany this week uh the iso uh, certification so there was a a lot of pushback when or by germany by the german iso terminology committee i mean there's another there's a standards body in germany called din uh, Deutsche Industrienorm, and they, they're, I mean, I'm not 100% familiar with the intricacies of how these ISA committees uh, come about, but uh, that particular uh, committee was in charge, is in charge of also reviewing some of the translation standards, and then there is um, a new one that was adopted um, by uh, a majority of uh, the the 36 other countries around legal translation. Um, mm. And then Germany broke ranks and said, we're rejecting this, we're not uh, going forward with this. And they pointed out that while it was adopted and approved by majority, there are still considerable, what they said, considerable unresolved differences. And they basically said, this may be used as like a, a uh, well, at the heart of the matter is they're saying it's it's not really 
required to have separate ISOs for each individual special technical field. Yeah. Right. So we, we, we like have where, this, where do you end? Yeah, where do you end? Right. We have the overall translation ISO, which is sufficient. We don't need legal finance. You know, we're, honestly, where would it end? Right. I mean, mm. you want to have 30, 40, 70 different standards. Um, they also said that it's uh, it's against certain regulations in Germany. I mean, okay, uh, it could be misused as a fake, almost kind of a quasi-fake certification for accuracy and completeness. If uh, the, the because the individual translators have to sign off on each piece, and then this would okay. co- they said it may create the impression of this being kind of a certified certified translation, which in some countries, such as Germany, can only be done by you know maybe a. Yeah, uh, notary public or some other uh, institution, and then they say ultimately distorts the level playing field to the detriment of freelance translators because um, uh, because it would put an additional well an additional step an additional certification in in the way of you know if you're a legal translator now you have to you know work towards that particular standard as well right which which mm. makes sense um, so yeah I mean I, we will look at the other side of this uh, issue as well and potentially in the coming weeks and months and see you know what what the people um you know behind this uh this uh this new rule would say in their defense i mean that was the one uh, aspect that i would have loved to have in that piece but it was uh it was it was not possible to get it at this point but we'll see if we can you know put the counter argument i i think i would be on the side of uh not having more intricate or more special yeah. standards here because yeah where where does it end uh, so i think it, it would also be interesting to see potentially what some of the other countries are saying because i think you know germany okay maybe they're the only ones who sort of said no we're not happy to go along with this but sounds like potentially some of the other countries also had some reservations about yeah. the yeah the, the standard as it was even though they did decide to adopt it to adopt it yeah I mean, yeah, I guess these committees aren't known for being super contentious, so maybe some just went along no. to, to go along, right? Mm. Where does it end? Well, Slitterpod ends here. Um, thanks for doing this on a bank holiday, as you guys say. <laughs> of course. And, uh, hope Doesn't feel s- like work when we're, when we're podcasting. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's how all of work should feel. Not like work. Especially now that work and personal life blend seamlessly together um yeah since we're all at home all right well that was it for the week thanks talk see you next week cheers bye thanks everyone bye